Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is for it's for a private discussion, and everything contained herein is for the entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. So today we're talking with Walter Coles Jr., Executive Vice President of Virginia Energy Resources. Virginia Energy Resources is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under symbol VUI. Walter, welcome. Thanks, Andrew. Pleasure to be speaking with you. Well, before we get into our chat, I just wanted to say thanks to the questions that came in from some of our uh, readers at Smith Weekly, uh, Levi B. Uh, at Feeds Explorers, uh, at IMMPREM, Jonathan J., Brian L., at Cure for Low Prices, and others. Uh, first off, Walter, uh, tell us what your background is, your past experience, and tell us how you came into and became involved with Virginia Energy, along with your father, Walter Cole Sr. Yeah, I guess I, I would start by saying I, I never in my wildest dreams, dreams imagined that I would be working in the mining industry. I, w I went to University of Richmond, I was an economics major, and after college, I, I went to uh, work for a bank in New York. And in the uh, right around the period of 2006-2007, um, I was uh, approached by a uh, prominent uh, natural resource investment banker in Toronto uh, with an idea of uh, trying to create a company around a um, uh, a mineral deposit that had been discovered on family land down in Virginia. Uh, certainly, we knew that, that the deposit was was there, uh, but we we never really thought that that as a family with with farmland we would ever consider developing a, a project ourselves. But um, uh, you know, back in that time period, 2007, price of uranium was was just skyrocketing. Uh, it was like 100 it reached. I think it was between 130 140 dollars a pound and uh, uh, with uh, backing of uh, what was at the time called Sprott Securities it was a firm investment banking firm owned by Eric Sprott uh, we, we created a company to uh, try to develop the uranium deposit on my uh, parents farmland so that's how I ended up leaving uh, finance in in New York and creating uh, what is called Virginia Energy Resources, and the operating company is called Virginia Uranium. Okay, and uh, yeah, so with, with that, you know, obviously there's been some downtime. The, the sector's fallen on hard times for quite some time since Fukushima, and of course, you guys have uh, the, the companies wound up in some some legal issues with uh, dealing yep. with things there in Virginia. So with that, you were involved with. Uh, uh, just recently, I think in the last couple of years, another junior natural resource business. Uh, tell us about uh, Skeena Resources. Yeah, so uh, as you as you mentioned, we we ran into a problem in the state of Virginia when a Democrat was elected governor. Uh, within a, about a week after he was elected, he announced that uh, he would not allow our uranium project in Virginia to go forward as long as he was governor. So at, at that point, we. Uh, we stopped trying to work with the state, and we switched to um, uh, basically switched to the courts to sue for basically our rights to develop uh, a mineral deposit on our own land. Uh, there's many examples of uranium projects being developed safely and successfully all over the United States. You know, it, Wyoming, Colorado, uh, Utah. So there, there's no reason why it can't be done uh, in Virginia. And uh, environmental groups who suggest otherwise just simply are, um, you know, a they don't they don't know what they're talking about from a technical basis, and and you know, b it's just a in my opinion it's politically motivated. Um, and, but because we ended up in the courts, um, we didn't really need an operating team because it basically switched over to lawyers. I uh, decided to take advantage of the of the sort of down time. To partner with one of our directors, a fellow by the name of Ron Netolitsky, who who has um, uh, has some fame in Canada for some very successful mineral discoveries. Uh, so I partnered with him 
on a company called Skeena Resources with the idea of focusing on northwestern area of British Columbia to, to, to find precious metals and copper uh, deposits up here. And so that's what I've been working on the last last couple of years while our Virginia uranium case works works its way through the courts. Right. Well, that sounds sounds good. Um, so so on speaking back to uh, uranium in general, what's your view yep. on the current state of the uranium mining business? Are we at the start of a bull cycle? Uh, I think we are. I, I think that for U.S. assets, I think that uh, uranium is 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 one of the few bright spots in the commodity space. Um, uh, obviously, vanadium is is. I think the the one standout right now, given that vanadium prices have gone from three dollars to to thirty four dollars in the last like eighteen months, um, but uranium's the next thing to go, and specifically it'll be U.S. assets, because I believe strongly the Trump administration will institute a quota system on on which requires that U.S. utilities use twenty five percent of their uranium consumption must come from U.S. Uh, domestic origin. So I, I think that that um, announcement of the Trump administration could come very soon in the next couple months. And, and with it, I think all U.S. Uh, prominent U.S. uranium assets will, will get a bid. So uh, there's not a lot to get excited about in the mining space these days, but I think the next one is going to be uranium. So it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a good time for your your readers to be looking at U.S. uranium assets. And again, I say U.S. because if uh, if there is a quota requirement on U.S. utilities, it will it will mean that that U.S. uranium prices have to go up to create the supply. Um, when when I turn to thinking about uranium on the international perspective, I still think that uh, we're going to need some time to work through inventories. For the last decade, basically since Fukushima, the world's been in a surplus uh, in terms of the amount of supply every year versus the consumption. So we had 10 years of, of inventory, not, not not quite 10 years, but called seven years of inventory build. And uh, we've certainly, in my opinion, moved to a deficit on an annual basis, but we got to work through some of those um, some of those global inventories. So I still think it's probably you know, maybe two two years uh, before international uranium prices start to catch a bid, but I think the near-term opportunity is U.S. U.S. uranium assets. Okay, yeah, absolutely, that's that's great, and, uh, and yeah, there's some interesting and I probably things should, going on. Should, should just put some numbers to that. Um, so last year, U.S. utilities consumed, I believe, it's about 48 million pounds of uranium, and U.S. domestic uh, production which is is more than just mine production and there's the, there's some secondary sources of supply but it but the last i checked it was about 2 million pounds so even if it you know if it was one and a half or it was 3 million pounds the the bottom line is that the united states is is importing you know more than 90% of its uh nuclear fuel needs um so uh, you know that that's why i think this this situation resonates so much with the trump administration is if ever there was a an industry that is dependent on foreigners, um, it's uranium. And if ever there was a need for the Trump administration to to step in and help create U.S. jobs and U.S. industry and U.S. security of supply, it's in the uranium space. So it's to me it's it's a no brainer. I I have. You know, I, I guess I would say I have almost 100% confidence that the Trump administration will make this move, and and I suspect that uranium prices in the U.S. will go from you know call it 28 bucks a pound, 29 right now, probably to 50 to 60 dollars a pound, and and the consequence of that will be valuations for all your U.S.-based uranium assets will go significantly higher. Wow, that sounds that's interesting. No, I, that's uh, that's some good views and some good points, um, and then certainly a, a, an interesting uh, prediction there. Absolutely. So uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the Section 232 comes out and and how that 
plays out and, yeah. and whether or not uh, the, the Trump just, administration includes includes maybe Canada or in Australia in that, or if, if uh, it's going to be solely U.S. or how that's really going to play out. See, I, I just don't buy this thing. I mean, I hear the scuttlebutt around that, oh, there'll be some sort of exclusion for 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 Canada, you know, specifically Cameco. And, and I don't buy it because, look, you know, what what the 232 petition asked for was quotas. So it asked for a requirement that U.S. utilities use U.S. origin uh, uranium. So right. I don't see the logic in allowing Cameco, oh, uh, it's 25% requirement for U.S. uranium and Canadian uranium. I don't, I don't see that. Like, to me, why on earth would the Trump administration do that? I don't. I just think it's kind of like wishful thinking on, you know, that, that shareholders may have on shareholders of Cam, of Cameco may have. I just I see zero logic to that. Um, do you uh, do you see, and, do you and see then, it wrap, do you see it ramping up like to, to get to the 25 percent? We know we know that they can't produce the U.S. can't do 25 percent tomorrow. But do you see it ramping up? Like, how do we get to the 25 percent? Yeah, obviously, over I, time? I think I think it's, it's probably phased in over two or three years. Um, the. Uh, my understanding is the Department of Commerce sent a delegation to tour um, the White Mesa Mill in the last week or two, and right. and and my understanding also is that for both steel and aluminum tariffs, the the, the tours of uh, of production facilities occurred just before announcements were made. So uh, you know I think what's different on those previous 232 investigations. Is that the Commerce Department took all 270 days that were allotted to it and didn't come out with its report till just before the uh, the time limit was up. Um, if that were to apply to uranium, Commerce would have until April to come out with a report. But right, my understanding is the tours that took place for aluminum and steel happened just just near the end of that 270 day period. So they're occurring much sooner in the process on the uranium side. And and the feedback I got was that uh, Department of Commerce was was uh, quite impressed with the uh, production capacity of the White Mesa Mill and the capacity uh, for U.S. uranium industry to ramp up production quickly. So, um, how, how do you see that? You know, how do you see that? How do you see that playing into the capex side and also the permitting side? Do you really think that kind of production can be met in two to three years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that that if the pricing is there, and, and remember what happens, if, if there's a quota, that means a U.S. utility is required to buy 25% of their fuel from domestic origin sources, okay? So right. the, the, the nice thing that happens is that U.S. uranium producers go from, from being price takers to price setters. So, so a U.S. utility has to buy, you know, by order of the Trump, they must buy U.S. uranium. So that puts U.S. producers in a great position where they say, well, guess what, guys? I'm only going to deliver you the uranium if I can make a decent return on my uh, investment. So that's why, to me, I'm pretty confident we'll see $50, $60 uranium. And with those kind of prices, you'll see, you'll see support from the investor community. Like you'll see the money available to uh, get projects Get the capex raised and get projects online quickly. Do you, do you think uh, that the Department of Energy and, and the NRC and some of these other folks, EPA, will, will shove aside some of the some of the uh, the red tape to speed these through? Yeah, well, I, I actually, th I mean, look, there's a there are there are a handful of projects that are that are permitted, right? They're they're ready to go. They just need a decent price. So, right. uh, I mean. You know, frankly, it might be kind of nice to see higher than 25%. Maybe it's we start at 25%, and then there's a push at the Trump administration to to uh, increase it to 50%. Um, right. You know, the, when you think about the opex of a, running a nuclear plant, the um, you know most of it is is in building the nuclear power plant. The opex right. portion is teeny. So if you if you Increase the price of uranium from thirty bucks to sixty bucks. I can't remember off the top of my head what the um, percentage of in increase in percentage of, of operating cost is, but it's right. in the single digit range. So you know when you think about inelasticity of demand, there's not going to be any change in the amount of uranium consumption by U.S. utilities 
just because the price of uranium increases from 30 to 60. You know, it, it maybe increases their total cost by like four or five percent. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's yeah. insignificant. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, well, that's interesting. Mark Mark Chalmers and I, when we were talking back a few weeks ago, uh, he mentioned we, there was some discussion about long-term contracts and what prices those would see, and it was Mark Mark was of the opinion that it was north of fifty, and so that's that's positive. Yeah. Um, so so anyway, moving on here, uh, kind of kind of speaking of the equities and stuff. So since Virginia is kind of stripped down at this point, down to a legal team and a set of court yep. cases, what other uranium equities do you like globally and in the U.S.? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I wouldn't. <laughs> if anything, if if I were an investor, I would be like one way to mitigate risk is go, um, you know, put on a pair trade, go long U.S. uranium assets, and go short. You know, maybe it's short Cameco, frankly. Um, uh, so me, if if I were going to be buying uh, uranium assets, I would definitely be buying U.S. uranium assets and. Um, top of my top of my list would be Energy Fuels. It's got the one permitted uh, uranium mill in the United States. Uh, yep. The other interesting thing about the uranium deposits in the Colorado Plateau is there's also a combination of vanadium with yep. commingled with the uranium, and the White Mesa mill can as a circuit to be able to process out the vanadium. And and frankly. <laughs> At uh, you know, typically you find the ratio of vanadium to uranium is like four, four to six to one. So meaning there's four to six times as much uh, vanadium as there is uranium. And you know, given that historically vanadium prices have been between like three and five bucks, but today they're like thirty to thirty-four. Um, I gotta tell you that that vanadium credit's worth more than the uranium credit. So. Uh, for that reason alone, a number one choice would be energy fuels. Um, uh, number two choice would be uh, UR Energy. They're permitted. They're producing. They can expand production, um, as, as can energy fuels. So if – I shouldn't say if. When we see a uranium price, 50 to 60 bucks, both of those guys can turn it on and, and be – uh, meaningful producers and, and help the U.S. get to that, you know, get our production up from a million pounds a year up to, you know, I think within 24 months, I believe the U.S. can be producing 10, you know, 10 to 12 million pounds of uranium a year. So, um, again, those are the guys that I would put number number one and two. Our own company, uh, uh, Virginia Energy, um, it's more of a, a longer term call option, I guess I would say. Like we have our, our case that, that was heard by the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I disagree with the newspaper headlines that were out there. I don't think they adequately or um, uh, fairly described the uh, what is a very complex legal case. Um, well, let's, you know, let's get to do, that. Yeah, sure, sure. Let's, let's, let's get to that in just a moment because I'm, I'm holding that okay. one just a little bit here okay. for, for okay. The, just a little bit of suspense. Um, yeah. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Coles Hill project, uh, tell us about the deposit, the size, and if there, if there are other economic minerals in the deposit that can be exploited along with the uranium. Sure. In our case for the Coles Hill deposit, there are it is a – I forgot the geologic term, but it, it's, it's only uranium. There's no rare earths. There's no vanadium. It is um, – uh, which is good and bad. It's, it's, it's good because there's – Let's say there's no sulfide, for instance, no sulfide minerals. So there's no potential for creating acid rock drainage, um, but there are no other strategic metals associated with the deposit. Um, it, it's it's very large. It's it's right at the surface. You can walk around. You know, these are basically cow pastures with a with a, a scintillometer or a Geiger counter, and it will it'll go off just standing there. Um, the uranium's right at surface, and it and it's open at depth. Um, it hasn't been drilled down dip, so there's lots of potential to to grow it and expand it. The uh, 43101 resource that we had done a few years back uh, by Barra Dolbert um, put the size of the the resource at over 100 million pounds. Um, as with any resource, you can vary the the grade by changing the cutoff. 
So there's certainly a high-grade core that could be, um, you know, sort of in the range of, of uh, 0.4 percent uh, uranium, or you can lower the cutoff and you end up with, you know, closer to 100 million pounds at at a 0.1 percent uh, uranium. So you know those grades aren't high by when you compare them to Athabasca, sort of like next gen's phenomenal deposit up there, which is going to be over 10 percent. But uh, you know our difference is we're not, um, you know we're not we're we're right at surface. You could basically come with a bulldozer and and start scooping up uh, uranium at, at Coles Hill. There's power. There's roads. So it's uh, from an infrastructure standpoint, very cheap. No strip ratios. Um, Athabasca with unconformity deposits, you know, often you have to um, uh, drill down to a thousand feet. You got to pump liquid nitrogen. You got to freeze the ground because the uh, it's it's basically sandstone filled with water, so it's like mush. So the only way to mine it is you got to free. You know, it's, it's technically much more challenging. So that's why you need a much higher grade in Athabasca, where in uh, Virginia um, our grade would make a lot of money basically it's it's a it's an incredibly attractive uh, deposit it has very high you know north of 30 percent uh, post-tax IRR using that that's based on a, a uranium price in that sort of 55 65 range um, which we do believe is is a, a decent long-term you know it's it's the kind of long-term price that will uh, uh, generate a, a a, uh, a return for the industry, and we're basically not going to have any uranium mining without a decent return um, right. over the longer term, anyway. Well, uh, that sounds good. So let's b bring in a, a fleet of Komatsu D575s and let's go to town on it. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Nothing would make me happier. So, yeah. so yeah. Well, obviously, well, you know, the higher the higher the uranium price, the the more the more uh, minerals you can that are become economic there, the more uranium becomes economic at, at those lower yeah. grades. But is, is this one with, with the geology and so forth? And and it's interesting your comment because the geology is environmentally friendly potentially, and with that um, it comes comes a lesser a lesser argument on the other side. And then also um, can can the geology there be upgraded? Can you can you apply some technologies and upgrade? Yeah, I mean, what I've been told by the geologists is is the real potential is down dip. You know, follow this sort of high grade core uh, deeper. But look, there's no shortage of uranium at, at the deposit already. <laughs> That's never been the problem. the The, the problem is is uh, getting it permitted and and into into production. Um, I think right. we, we made some some mistakes with, um, you know, with our efforts to move it ahead. I think we were naive and we thought we could sit down with environmental groups and and uh, you know try to work together to do a project in a way that would would be um, uh, you know an example of how you know how a mining project should be done and and. Right. That's not to say there there are not lots of other mining projects around the world done responsibly because there's there are first class companies that that uh, do that and and that was our intention but I I felt that some of the environmental groups that we uh, met with were pretty underhanded in their um, in their uh, uh, methods and right. and to me it was a real real eye opener and I think if if we you know, when we make another push to do this, we're not going to be as naive as we were uh, the first time right. around. Well, it's 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 sad because you know these these folks uh, that that are against these types of things, they 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 pack around iPhones and they go home at night and they charge them and they forget about the yeah. base load power that comes from nuclear power. So it's it's really just uh, backwards, and it's too bad. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'll add I'll uh, add one more anecdote to that to that. Um, uh, Greenpeace was was founded here in Vancouver in the basement of a church by it was it was five individuals who founded it and there was only one of them who had a degree in science it was a fellow by the name of Patrick Patrick Moore and I had the good fortune of, of crossing paths with Patrick and and working with him on on some things and and he told me that uh, Greenpeace got to the point where it was raising you know between 100 and 200 million dollars a year and uh, it it ceased to be
be an organization that was uh, consider considerate uh, considerate about the science from his perspective. It became a political organization and a money organization, and a very effective one at that. And and he said that he fell out with the other founders because of that sort of shift to being a political organization. And we all know and and look, I think highly of what. Uh, Greenpeace does. I mean, if you brought up the the topic of whales with Patrick Moore, I mean, I've seen him actually almost start to cry because he feels so passionate about it. Um, but uh, I think some of the environmental groups in the United States are just out of control, and it's very much a money business for them. And and uh, you know they call themselves nonprofits, but when you're raising a hundred to two hundred million dollars a year, and you have access to corporate jets and all sorts of expense accounts, it, it calls into question whether they're really nonprofits in my mind. Yeah. Well and it, and it becomes it becomes a little bit distorted at that point once you start seeing the, the cash. And and with yeah. that, you know, I, last last I checked the humpback whales are still passing by Diablo Canyon in California. So right. I, I don't think they have any issue with it, judging by the uh yeah. the, the investigations there. But you know, one of the things I'll just say if it came from a basement of a church, then I can tell you that Greenpeace, judging by how things are going right now, uh, that uh, they're going to have a religious experience. So we'll we'll find out how that goes. Yep. <laughs> yep. So so uh, on kind of a little bit on this subject, real quick, if you can just talk to it at Coles Hill, uh, yep. how supportive of the local the local community, how supportive and the local landowners nearby Coles Hill, uh, yep. how, how are those folks doing? You know, it, it was an interesting thing. I, I think most of the the neighbors are are very supportive of it. The, there were groups of opposition, and, and you know, the irony is, often they were folks who have left the north and moved down to Virginia. Uh, you know, let's say they sold their their house in New Jersey and they were able to buy equivalent house in rural Virginia for a third to half the price, and basically they're they're retired. Um, you know that's a good description of our opposition there is uh um, so you know that that's part of it there were there were some business owners who I think felt threatened by the idea that we would create you know several hundred high paying jobs and and potentially create competition on on uh, you know the wages that they would have to pay their own employer own employees in the area um, so Look, it, it's not. It wasn't a hundred percent by any means, um, but I, I personally felt that 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 and and based on polling work that we did there, um, there was a uh, you know a better than fifty percent you know better than majority level of support for the uh, uh, for the project, and you know my my view is when we go in and make the, the next push at this, we're going to take all the things that we learned. Um, and apply them to being, I, I think, much more effective at, at getting this project pushed through. I don't want to go into the details about all those those things because, in case this sure. uh, uh, you know recording gets out, I don't want to uh, sort of divulge the playbook. But look, I mean, we've had that land in my family for 200 years, and you know, if we got to wait another 10 years to make it, or five years, or 15 years to make the push, like. Uh, I can promise you that we will be making another push. Sure, absolutely. Um, and you know, some of those some of those surrounding businesses they, they they tend to forget the economics of it too, and 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 what what bringing on new employees and having that operation nearby uh, would potentially help out some of these retail businesses and so forth. So so on moving on. Um, so so yep. back to Virginia, uh, the uh, the company, the, the share structure, and so forth. So they Virginia has three major shareholders. Last time I checked, your family, uh, Energy Fuels, and Sprott. So we've recommended Energy Fuels in our nuclear report, and as folks know, we also have Virginia as a speculation. So what mm -hmm. is the relationship with Energy Fuels first, and then also what's the relationship with Sprott? Yeah, so um, Sprott, let me just say, they're a fantastic organization. Uh, they're some of the, the best uh, natural resource investors uh, globally, and uh, they take a long-term view, and, and, you know, I think they believe that over the longer term, 
um, the need for uh, uranium will rise. They also think that, you know, given the U.S. has the largest fleet of, of, of uh, reactors, it, uh, it makes sense that at a certain point the U.S. will develop its own domestic industry. And so I think that was their, uh, their reasoning for, for being involved and for continuing to support, uh, support the project. I think uh, you know energy fuels at, at one point was very uh, acquisitive of uh, projects all throughout the United States. A very smart move on their part to uh, to consolidate during the the darkest days in the uranium space after Fukushima. Um, Steve Anthony was the old CEO there, and and he should get the credit for for having the the wisdom to go out and acquire. Uh, um, you know, assets when basically no one wanted to talk about uh, uranium. You know, it, it takes a lot of courage to uh, to have done that. And and Mark Chalmers is the has the good fortune to inherit the portfolio that Steve Anthony put together. Uh, the the stake that Energy Fuels uh, took in in our project was out of uh, was part of Steve Anthony's larger uh, strategy to consolidate during the uh, during the dark days in the in the sector. Um, right. You know some of the other prominent guys who are our shareholders are uh, Lucas Lundin and also um, the Goodman uh, Ned Goodman and his his family. Um, so oh, interesting. Yep. Yep. Okay. So we got some good 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 uh, I would say good institutional support. Yeah, absolutely. So so let's move on. So let's get into the subject that everybody wants to know about. So tell us about the experience to be in front of the Supreme Court. Walk us, walk us inside the courtroom since you are there. Yeah, I have to say, um, it, it, you know, a just the idea that our case would be heard by the Supreme Court. Um, I, I didn't expect that to happen, and uh, it was an it was an incredible experience. Um, it is the the third, you know, sort of third leg of of the stool for for government in the uh, in the US you know we've got the executive branch you got congress and then you have the courts and the supreme court is the highest highest court in the land you got nine nine justices there and um, you got four you know justices who are perceived to be left leaning and five who are perceived to be conservative um, i have to say justice roberts the chief justice uh, he's uh, he's he's Got a lot of charisma. He's he's very civil, very polite. Uh, he could be captain of a football team. Um, I mean, that's the kind of charisma that he has. It, uh, and I think he's a great leader of the of the court. Um, it's you know being in the in the Supreme Court for a hearing, you you truly do get the you know there's an aura of power that uh, radiates. Um, you've got gilded gilded wood. Um, uh, you know, sort of furniture, and it's like Roman columns and neoclassical reliefs, and and then there's, you know, each of the the personalities of of each justices that that project, whether it's, you know, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, or Clarence Thomas, or Brett Kavanaugh, uh, you know, in the questions they ask or don't ask. Um, uh, you you do get a sense of the of the personalities involved and and you know this group of nine individuals the decisions they make have a um, very far reaching impact on our um, on the the way the United States will uh, you know has evolved and will continue to evolve so phenomenal experience it was it takes four justices to choose to hear to vote to hear a case. They get somewhere between 10,000 and 15,000 appeals a year, and they hear somewhere between 50 and 70 cases a year. So the success rate on appeal to have your case heard by the Supreme Court is, um, you know, it's, it's about a half a percent success rate. So, you know, basically one out of every 200 appeals uh, gets has the opportunity to be heard by the court. Um, we had uh, uh, amicus briefs filed uh, by three members of the United States Senate Armed Services Committee. Ted Cruz was one of those guys. Uh, we also had the Trump administration file an amicus brief. Um, 
both the 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 U.S. senators and the Trump administration took the position that this is an incredibly important natural resource uh, uh, that's important to the security of the United States, and and the federal government took the position that it, this is this is an important issue and and resource that the you know in my opinion the federal government stated that they want to see it pushed forward. Interesting. No, I, very well. I, I appreciate the uh, the visual, the visual, and, and the discussion there. Um, very interesting. So, so with with that, so just a few questions on on the uh, on this here. So, do you see the the 232 petition? I'm I'm assuming the court is aware of that. And uh, do you think that this 232 petition ongoing at the same time of, of this case hearing? Do you think that is a positive for Virginia? I, I think it's definitely a positive, you know, for the company in terms of the backdrop and in terms of the support from the Trump administration. I think it's a it's a clear uh, piece of evidence that the Trump administration is supportive of a domestic uh, U.S. uranium industry. Uh, with regards to the, the the justices, I think uh, I don't think it, I don't think it has quite. The impact because a it hasn't even happened right, um, and the justices will have already. I mean, it's a crazy thing. They will have already gotten together at this point and have already voted on this case. So they get together in a private conference about two weeks after the case is heard, and they discuss it amongst themselves and then they vote. So that that's already happened. So the justices already know what's gonna. Uh, you know what the what the vote is on this case, um, but they will take several months to complete the opinion. There'll be a majority opinion and uh, a, a dissenting minority opinion, um, right. and and we don't expect to see that until some point next year. Uh, the justices issue opinions on every case that's heard during the term before the end of the term. So the term, the current term, will end in June. So. We're likely to see a ruling on our case somewhere between March and June. Okay, is our expectation. Very well. Yep. So, so on, on that, so just give me give me a number. We've got nine of them on the court. <clears throat> how, how do you think they're leaning? Just give me give me a number if you, you know, simplify it. I think it'll be close. Uh, well, I shouldn't say I. Uh, uh, our own lawyers uh, believed that it will be it will be a close case. They sort of predicted either five four. In favor or five four against, um, but it's a black box. I mean, uh, people try to infer from the questions that justices that the justice members of the Supreme Court ask during the hearing as to where they're leaning, but um, I, I just think it's very tricky to try to. I mean, you can try to glean, uh, look into a crystal ball and figure that out, but who knows what the motivation is behind any individual question? Is it is it is it you know positioning for their own internal discussions and um, right? So uh, you know, I Very thought complex. Kavanaugh, I thought Kavanaugh seemed supportive, and I thought Justice Breyer seemed obviously very supportive, um, and Roberts was was probably supportive. A little harder to read. Um, any of your your readers can go and and uh, access a transcript of the case and or listen to it. I mean, it's it's out there on the web, um, and and I always recommend that as opposed to reading um, a newspaper headline. In fact, right. I always feel like you you see these newspaper headlines about a Trump press conference, and then you you know especially from like a CNN, then you go and actually watch the conference, and I feel like it's two completely different. Uh, uh, um, you know, I, I I sometimes have a completely different take on a Trump press conference from what's reported in the news, and that's how I felt about our uh, our hearing at the Supreme Court. Right, and and yeah, we and we saw we saw the text written versions of the uh, the discussions. Uh, I, did, I wasn't aware of an audio, uh, but uh, but certainly we we saw how the stock traded uh, when when yeah. uh, some of the news agencies put out their their stuff there and. Um, they, they certainly did some folks a favor uh, to get lower prices, but uh, 
Yeah, it, it yep. is interesting, and, and the misleading nature of the media is obvious in the United States. Um, so it, it's interesting to see how that'll go. And and with that, we we had uh, uh, there's some content coming out from us that that has a position on the issue. Um, yep. So we we're actually writing an article about that that will will come out in the next week or two weeks. And then uh, right. actually, uh, Dustin, when Dustin and I spoke uh, just uh, yesterday, uh, he had he had an opinion on it as well. So I'll I'll, I'll share that with you later so you can check it out. Um, sure. So let's 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 go uh, to the next one here. So if if Virginia loses, yep. uh, what are the what are the next steps to keep pressure on the project? If you can share that. Yeah, sure. So uh, there's actually a handful of different different ways, and I don't want to go into every single aspect of, of our strategies just because um, I don't want to tip off uh, anyone who would be plotting against us. But uh, the things I can talk about are, are we have a, a case that we filed in state court and it's basically an expropriation case. So we're saying, all right, fine. If you're, if you're going to keep, if you're going to not allow us to mine uh, a deposit on our own land, then that is effectively a takings. And if you're going to take, the Constitution in the state of Virginia requires that you compensate for that. So uh, uh, our lawyers felt very strongly that that, that case had good uh, good legal merit, and the reason we put that case on hold is because um, the Supreme Court has, you know, as I mentioned, thousands of cases appealed to it every year, and so they're limited in their time uh, in the cases they can hear. So if they believe a, a case has other venues for salvation or for satisfaction, then they won't hear the case because they'll say, oh, well, you know, that case could be, get resolved through this other method. So we right. didn't want that to be a reason that the Supreme Court didn't hear our case. So we we put, we asked for a stay on our state case, which was granted by the state judge. So if the Supreme Court rules against us, we will, we will re- restart that case in uh in state court so that that's Interesting. That's, uh, that's one way another way is that we get a republican governor who's supportive and a sure. republican attorney general who's supportive um the uh um the uh you know the republicans have 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 generally in the state been very supportive of our project um while and we have had some support from certain Democrats, but uh, if we have a, a Democrat, if we have a governor who's opposed to the case, that governor can veto any legislation, and we would need two thirds of the legislature to push it ahead. So we have not been able. To, we we felt confident we could get a majority, but we could we could we never thought in the current climate we could get a supermajority. So right. we can always go back and, and and try to work if the stars line up politically and we have a, a supportive government in, in Virginia, uh, we can finish what we were trying to do earlier. Right. Yeah, it's, and it's interesting, too, uh, you know, in the state of Alaska right now with the governor change there, there's some positive things coming out of that. And, and of course, as you probably know, uh, the, the Pebble project up there has been hotly disputed for a long time. And so that's another interesting venue, yep. uh, you know, change of seats up there and how that's going to play out. And uh, yeah, it's interesting to see what will happen, but that, that actually, what you said falls kind of into my, uh, another question that actually came up. <clears throat> is there, is there a case about federal eminent domain to put the project <laughs> within federal hands? It's 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 interesting that you say that because during the uh, the the hearing, and, I, and maybe you, you read this in the transcript, um, uh, the Solicitor General, which is the top litigator for the federal government, uh, was giving his presentation to the court, uh, which was supportive of of our project, and uh, Justice Kagan interrupted him and said, "Listen," she said, "If this is so important to the federal government, then the federal government could." could she used the term condemn the lands and then it becomes federal land and the state of Virginia has no authority to regulate a project on federal land. So uh, it's something we've we've thought about before and I thought it, I thought it was interesting that, that Kagan would bring it up 
we have a supportive federal government right now, and if the the uh, if the area that was so we have about 3,000 acres there, and the area that would be mined is you know it's not very big. It's two open pits. Probably each pit is 80 acres, 75 acres each. So right. you know if if the federal government through eminent domain were to were to you know take control of those lands. Um, in a situation where maybe they lease the the mineral, we lease the mineral rights. Government takes ownership of the land, and we push ahead with the project. Like that is certainly an option that could be on the table. Sure, absolutely, and and that's that's you know as, as you head out west, uh, like everybody knows, uh, federal land increases substantially as you head out west, and uh, you know people take leases, and and so it's kind of normal out there. Yeah. Uh, here here on the east on the east coast, it's a little more convoluted but uh, no it was interesting an interesting situation and uh, how how that's uh, kind of gotten into the discussion so it'll be interesting to see what happens on that so yep. if if the project is able to proceed into development permitting <clears throat> uh, are all the financing options for the project on the table including royalty and streams yeah I mean I think that uh, look if this project has a permit it's it's it will it won't have any problem raising capital for it. I mean, the the returns sure. at uh, you know at fifty dollar uranium are awesome, so it shouldn't be very difficult to raise capital. Okay, no, absolutely, that, that's good. That that was a that was a reader question, and I I wanted to bring that up. And and with that sure. too, I think there's a little bit of emphasis on the royalty and streams because of the changing. Uh, atmosphere in the in the market. We had we had just sent a letter to Sandstorm Gold. Uh, arguing that uh, the royalty companies and the streaming companies need to take a look at uranium and they need to close out their tunnel vision uh, with regards to, well, we're just focused on precious metals. Well, you should really yeah. look at the whole realm of natural resources. And if, if Franco Nevada is looking at oil, maybe, maybe if the timing is right and the situation is right and the math adds up, yep. uh, uranium makes a lot of sense at these points. So we made that, we made that point. And then with that, as you might know, uh, there is a royalty company that just came out or is actually yeah. it's still private i believe it's going to be listed at some point uh uranium yeah, royalty right. corp and so yeah anyway so that was that was an interesting question that came about yeah i mean look uranium's the small world phil williams is the the person behind that uh uranium royalty company and and phil was the banker at uh, dundee securities who got energy fuels uh to take a stake in um, Virginia Energy and uh, backing Phil, no surprise, is are the the guys at Sprott. So it's all right. it's all very incestuous. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Well, uh, so so at this point, uh, tell us why investors should consider Virginia at this point in the game. Tell us about uh, the funds of Virginia right now, the plans. Obviously, we know what that is: the share structure and the management expertise. And, and why now should investors get involved? Yeah, well, look, I, I would say there's a couple couple catalysts. Um, uh, I think the, the the most near-term catalyst is the 232. And, you know, my recommendation to investors is buy a basket of U.S. uranium companies, uh, including Virginia in that basket. I mean, I'd, I'd weight it more towards energy fuels and, and just put a put a small piece uh, Virginia in there. Virginia's, uh, you know, Virginia's got a market cap of, I mean, for, it's less than $10 million Canadian. So that's your, that's your lottery ticket. Uh, um, you know, energy fuels, I, I could see the upside there being, you know, maybe a three or four bagger, um, which is a great return. But, you know, our little uh, Virginia energy could be, be a 10 to 20 bagger uh, kind of opportunity. So higher risk, but a higher reward, and that's why I say put together, uh, take a basket approach. And uh, you know, the other thing is there's just liquidity considerations with with any of these companies. So whether you're an individual or institution buying, um, I think the the basket approach is a is a good way to mitigate risk and and maintain decent upside uh, potential. So again, just to recap, two thirty two would be the the uh, the near-term opportunity for uh, Virginia. The second, uh, 
you know, massive game-changing opportunity is a is a positive ruling out of the U.S. Supreme Court. So that's in terms of timeline. That's sometime next spring. Um, uh, other, uh, I guess, the third sort of you know catalyst for the for the sector in general is to see uh, an increase in international uranium prices. So I do think that's in the cards. I just think it's a little bit further out than than I think a lot of people in the industry like to say. So you know, maybe I I think it's probably two years. Um, but then again, you know, the thing about commodities is they're unpredictable. You can wake up one day and they just take off in a way that you never expected. So, um, I guess again, just to emphasize the conclusion, I would do a basket approach of U.S. U.S. uranium equities. Right. No, absolutely. It's it's good, and and Virginia is obviously uh, capital wise is uh, very very lean and. Uh, you know, you guys. Are it is. Not, yeah, not I'm sorry, open. I didn't. I didn't answer your question there. So I, I, we have about a half million dollars in the in the treasury, but our we we have one uh, employee one employee that's paid. Uh, she's a a personal assistant. Uh, she works part time. I think you know our probably our cost there is is maybe twenty five thousand dollars a year. So we really don't have any expense. We we own a lot of land and we receive rental income on the land. Um, uh, we, we bought land to be buffer. And so, you know, one of the things we can do to fund legal fees is take some of that buffer land and sell it. So there's no imminent need to raise any capital to fund our, our legal strategy. Uh, we could go for, for years without raising any additional money. Right. So, so the rental, the rental, you're renting out the cow pastures. Exactly. Yep. Excellent. Yep. Excellent. I, I like it. No, that that sounds great. It, it's an interesting situation, and it's very very lean. The, the share structure is very uh, very respectable, and uh, so it's 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 a good good setup and a great speculation. And and we we share much of the same opinion on the uh, on how investors should approach uh, Virginia. So so Walter, it's been fun, insightful. We really appreciate you coming on. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Pleasure talking with you.